good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM, KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in neuronal science. In addition, we'll be joined by Michael Rubin, who will tell us how to make movies with Final Cut Express. Also, we'll find out how to convert vibrations into energy. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Rocks, I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Very good, very good. I think I'm ready to go to China. Are you ready to go to China now? Yeah. All right, let's pack it up and head off. Yeah, just unplug my laptop and I'm ready to go. <laughs> it's all the same. Yeah, we're hitting the, hitting the show on the road coming uh-huh, up here. Uh-huh. So it'll be kind of fun. Yeah. And uh, hopefully running the state of California from China as well. Running the state of California, of course. It's it's week two of our, our road to the governorship. You, you did pay Arnold Schwarzenegger already, have you? That's right. He's 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 going to take he's a dive. Right. He's going to take a dive early on, drop out, and we're gonna we're gonna take the governorship from him <laughs> in case in case the people don't know. All right, vote Grox. Grox in the California governor election. Right in. We don't even need to apply for no, this. No, we're not. We're not applying because that's just part of the bureaucracy, and we're not going to do that. <laughs> we have the moral imperative. That's right. What What is our moral imperative, by the way? I thought it was anarchy. Uh, that works. Too. I thought it was bringing science to the masses. Anyways, there's some interesting news about pollution between the city and the uh, the countryside. Is that right? What is this? So it turns out that in a study carried out in New York with cottonwood plants that these same plants in the city seem to grow much faster, have much higher biomass than the ones grown in the country over a three-year period of time. Huh. And that seems quite, kind of contradictory because you would think the city has more ozone and other pollutions which are, you know, damaging the uh, the ecosystem. So they carried out this tr- uh, study using the same soil transplant, same nutrition, you know, more or less the same uh, conditions. Uh, the things they can control are the temperatures, the carbon dioxide uh, uh, right. uh, levels, but those, you know, they took into account. And the surprising thing they found out was that there's also nitrous oxide in the city, right, from from the car exhaust. So those seem to be scavenged by the ozone, which means, in fact, the ozone cycle goes up and down. Uh-huh. Whereas in the countryside, the ozone seems to just remain level. Constant, yeah, I see. This brings new worry as the pollution in the uh, the rural areas. It seems that they don't go away so readily as they right. do in the uh, the urban environment. I see. So so the, basically, the chemistry in the urban areas are, are can turn over all these pollutants a lot better than uh, they can in, in in the rural areas. Right. Well, their equilibrium is much different. Right. Rural. There, there might be more pollutants, but right. it's somewhat more different. Hmm. So this is causing this uh, what seems to be a paradox. Hmm. And this is all thanks to the trees, huh? Yeah, so uh, I guess if anyone wants to know more, they can go to the recent issue of Nature, and uh, this was carried about by uh, Clive Jones and Todd Dawson. Okay, well, moving on from uh, trees relieving pollutants to pollutants in our water. 
pollutants in the water. Yeah, this is a dirty episode of Grog. We're, we're, you know, because we have to address these issues if we're going to run for the governorship. Yeah. And this is the politics is dirty anyway, so we're going to clean politics up, starting one pollutant at a time. Wipe them out. All of them. And uh, this particular pollutant is well, it's not really a pollutant. It's copper. 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 It's, it's copper as in CU, copper the element, the oh, metal. Uh-huh. Yes, copper, which could contribute, it turns out, to Alzheimer's disease. To Alzheimer's? Yes. How's that possible? Well, it's kind of an interesting... Could chew uh, on too many pennies? Could chew on too many pennies, or you could be drinking water from copper pipes. Oh, uh-huh. And this is the interesting thing. So, uh, researchers have recently found that uh, rabbits fed uh, w- or water uh, containing copper uh, developed these certain plaques that are observed in Alzheimer's disease. I see. So they're called these beta amyloid plaques, these little uh, little clumps of uh, material right. in the in the brain. Right. And it was kind of an interesting finding because it it happened sort of uh, it happened sort of serendipitously. Uh-huh. Uh, this was happened. So this this work actually happened somewhat serendipitously uh, to pathologist Larry Sparks at, at the University of Kentucky Chandler Medical Center in Lexington. Uh, what he was doing, he was studying uh, how rabbits uh, responded to high cholesterol diets, right, and show that they actually increased their uh, beta amyloid plaque count. Uh, but when he moved over to Arizona, he found that when he fed them the same diet, they didn't develop as many plaques. Um, and then he traced it and he found out that the water he was using was actually copper-free. Oh. It had been distilled. So uh, he went back, tested the copper, and found that if you fed these rabbits actually copper, uh-huh. they uh, they developed the plaques, they performed poorly on memory tests, this kind of stuff. Wow. So it turns out that the copper might be might have some role in, in creating amyloid-like plaques. So it's not clear so that it's actually... This could be the key to our education problem, huh? Getting <laughs> all that attention deficit syndrome is, uh, is to the copper. The system. copper in the... I, th- I always thought it was like the fluoride in the water, you know? Really? That could not be good. <laughs> sure, you got good teeth, but hey, how good can that be? Uh, but it's kind of interesting. Um, still, it's not definitive. They've just shown that these plaques are formed. Um, some people say that they don't look l- exactly like Alzheimer's plaques. They're mm-hmm. a little different, but um, it remains to be but seen. So, yeah, it's suspicious. So uh, don't go tearing out your copper plumbing yet, <laughs> but uh, take a look. If you have lead plumbing, definitely take that out. Oh, definitely. Yeah. The question Romans. <laughs> Brought down the Roman Empire is what I hear. Yeah. All right. So this was in the recent issue of Science. Okay, well, continuing our dirty streak today, we have more news for the environment. Ah, though, our troubled environment. Yeah. That is our goal, to rid the environment of all its troubles. The court has turned down a request by the state of California to uh, not use ethanol in their new uh, formulations for gasoline. To not use ethanol. Right. So, according to the Clean Air Act, we need to have about 2% oxygen content mm-hmm. uh, in the gasoline to make it burn cleaner. Right. Um but refiners here claim that they can get the same cleanliness without using this additive. Oh, is that right? Uh, what they're using right now is uh, MTBE, you, right. which you probably heard about, uh, methyl butyl ether, which unfortunately um, it leaks into the ground and pollutes our pollutes groundwater. Pollutes the groundwater, yeah. So they're going to phase that out, and uh, there's a law requiring that they replace it with ethanol. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we still have to keep that, even though uh, there are claims that we don't really need it. Right, right. Huh. So they actually can say that uh, the cars right now will burn cleaner without even the ethanol, huh? Uh, possibly. So, you know, there are a lot of political issues related to this. Apparently, uh, there's a there's a very uh, large lobby from the Midwest, corn growers, who uh, <laughs> provide the ethanol. Right. And, uh, you know, obviously they're delighted that uh, we're required to uh, right. put some alcohol into our gasoline. Oh, I, I don't know. They'll have to just switch to making corn vodka or something. <laughs> 
But uh, there's other issues involved. For example, um, incomplete burning of the ethanol can result in the acids or aldehydes uh, coming to the atmosphere, and those are also not very good either. Mm. So there are many issues uh, that right. need to be resolved here. Okay. Well, uh, hopefully uh, the EPA and uh, the state of California and whoever the new governor is will be able to work it out. Yeah, and terminate the problem. Terminate, yeah. We're not making any predictions, but the problem would be terminated. All right, and uh, if you want to go no more, just go to the recent issue of Chemical and Engineering News. They'll be back. Okay, well, if all the troubling uh, stories about the environment are too much for you, we bring you our final story. Sexual chemistry. More dirty stuff. It's all dirty stuff here on on Grox, but you know <laughs> we expose the truth. We expose the truth as it stands, and uh, <laughs> this is one of the fine, fine findings uh, regarding uh, the basically the the biochemistry of uh, sexual arousal. And wow. <laughs> there's all kinds of cool things with we it. Get Sean Connery on the show. Yes, we need some more Viagra here. So, I don't know, that wasn't really Sean Connery, was it? I'm not sure who that was. But anyway, uh, so the big, the big story in, uh, in uh, you know, penal erections is the nitric oxide, right? Okay. And that's created by a, a, a particular enzyme called nitric oxide synthase, uh-huh. which uh-huh. transfers argi- or makes arg- or arginine into citrulline and releases nitric oxide. Okay, so the mechanism, it releases more blood into your uh, right. genitals. Right, that's essentially what happens. But... Uh, there's this new enzyme which has been found called arginase. Arginase? Yes. Is that Arg- related to arginine? It is. And so arginine, which is converted by nitric oxide synthase, can also be converted by arginase into urea, uh-huh. or make urea out of it, okay. and thus prevent the release of nitric oxide, and therefore lack of blood flow. Interesting. So if you have more arginase, it actually reduces blood flow and causes uh, more problems with your sexual mechanisms that are going on. So is this something that we can uh, solve by what we eat? or? Well, it, it turns out there is, of course, uh, ways you can do that by what you're eating. But in fact, what they've done is they've uh, developed arginase inhibitors. Oh. So block the activity of this enzyme right. so that it no longer works. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it was a pretty cool finding uh, by David Christensen and a graduate student, uh, Avis Kama. I'm not sure how they were going about studying this, but anyway. <laughs> Must be field work, huh? Uh, it's, not, it's not published in Playboy. It's actually published in Biochemistry, uh, Volume 42, 8445. Wow. So Sounds pretty serious. It, I can only imagine. But it, I'm sure it was funded by Larry Flint or somebody. <laughs> and that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Michael Rubin will join us to tell us about his new book, Making Movies in Final Cut Express. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. Well, making videos used to be in the domain of professional filmmakers, but with the proliferation of cheaper and faster digital technology, the average consumer can now make their own home videos, movies, and documentaries. Well, joining us today is Michael Rubin, who's going to tell us a little bit about that. He's the author of Making Movies in Final Cut Express. Uh, Mr. Rubin, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Rocks today. Thanks for having me. So first of all, could you tell us a little bit about your book and uh, how you came about writing it? Well, uh, I happened to use the software that I wrote about, Final Cut Express, uh, and before it, Final Cut Pro. Uh-huh. And I hadn't really intended to write a how-to book. It's not something I, I really do. But I found that I was really interested in um, communicating to people not how to use software. I mean, I, I don't really care about how to use software, but... I felt that there needed to be sort of a consumer course in how to edit video. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've got all these really cool tools that you can get that don't cost very much money, and I think most people don't realize that less than a decade ago, those same kinds of tools, things that did the same thing, would have cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, right. um, they're amazing. These are professional tools, and there's a sort of a tendency to think of them as diminutive now that they're inexpensive, but the truth is they're very powerful and you can do almost anything you want. So I thought it was time to just explain a little bit about how to edit, what are the the basics, and I would use the software that I happen to use to explain editing. So I wrote a book a couple years ago called Beginner's Final Cut Pro Mm -hmm. and uh, sort of evolved that into making movies with Final Cut Express simply to, you know, give people a place to start when you buy this software, instead of being uh, sort of inundated with hundreds of pages of all the great things the software can do, I'm not really interested in teaching you everything the software can do. But I did want to show people what basic editing is about. And once you understand a little bit about editing and how to use the software, you see it's very simple to edit, and the software is very powerful. Even consumer software is very powerful. Mm-hmm. Therefore, what you can do is apply that to your life and with your small business or your home videos or your school projects, whatever. It's just a, a means to an end, and I wanted to sort of communicate that to people. So what exactly is uh, Final Cut? Well, Apple has um, taken it upon themselves to not only make some pretty good computers, but uh, they, they've managed to take professional-level software, formerly the domain of broadcasters and filmmakers, and sort of they, they didn't really streamline it. They just dropped the price down <laughs> so it's affordable to normal people. And I just, when, it, when this software was uh, released to the public, uh, again, Final Cut Pro came first back in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. I was stunned. I had been out of the editing industry for a number of years, and then here was this, at the time, $1,000 piece of software, which was virtually identical to some you know, $100,000 software I'd used just a few years earlier. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I guess I'd waited almost my whole career for the tools of professionals to be so accessible. So um, Final Cut Pro uh, is a professional editing product. It, it allows you to take digital video, manipulate it on your computer, and output you know, movies, uh, either compressed or uncompressed, uh, and put them out on DVDs or compress them for the web. And Apple uh, evolved their product, Final Cut Pro, through a few different versions. And when they reached version 3, it was a really robust and sophisticated tool, uh, and miraculously, they sort of lopped it off in time and said, Final Cut Pro version 3, we're going to continue making this product better and more professional, but let's stop here and just make this a consumer product. And mm. so they 
they called it Final Cut Express, which for all intents and purposes is the third version of Final Cut Pro, and they charged uh, you know a few hundred dollars for it. And it, it just blew me away that uh, that the functionality that you have in this uh, Final Cut Express product is, you know, it really is Final Cut Pro. It is a professional tool. They just made it very accessible. So I was excited about that, and I thought people should know. I, you know, you drop the price for a product like that, and you put it on the computer for anyone to buy in a store or on the web, and most people don't realize what they're being given. Uh, they think it must be a toy or a kid's thing or something that, something else. And, in fact, it's really a, a really great thing to make available to the public. Um, have you made any movies with Final Cut Express recently? You, you can make a movie with Final Cut Express. It's not, I mean, the market clearly, uh, they, they took out some of the more sophisticated functions uh, and there are more sort of internal functions, database-related functions, to sort of keep people from making movies with Final Cut Express. But it's really the same thing as Final Cut Pro. What, when you say making movies, I mean, it can handle the, the length of a movie. It can handle the tools of making a movie. Right. Um, the kind of thing that they took out is if you actually shot film to make a movie, there's a database required to convert sort of film to video and back to film. And I they see. removed sort of that kind of functionality. And I don't think anyone would need that who's, who's using Final Cut Express. If you really did need that, you could sort of seamlessly upgrade your project to Final Cut Pro, I suppose. Yes. But that's not what most people are doing. They aren't actually shooting on film and telecinning to video and then trying to get back to film. That that just isn't, isn't the market. But technically speaking, you have the tools to cut a feature film or a commercial or a documentary, mm-hmm. even in something like Final Cut Express. I mean, you know, editing editing for about 100, 100 years has been done with a razor blade and tape. I mean, right. editing isn't really complicated computationally you you cut things up and you rearrange them and you put them back together um probably the hardest thing about editing is that you're doing doing that with picture and you're doing that with sound sometimes a few different tracks of sound and and keeping those sort of things together and organized is what makes editing both a, a little more challenging for some people and uh a more fascinating art form because it's not just pictures being moved around but pictures and sound but final cut pro and final cut express both do it and uh and i thought that i would talk about that when the second Star Wars movie came out recently, uh, it was completely done in digital. Do you feel that more and more movies will uh, go towards digital and eventually we won't even need to have film? Well, yeah, I think uh, when you look at the history of film, if you can get some perspective, and the history of videotape, uh, I think there'll be, uh, you know, the first hundred years of celluloid where they shot and uh, projected and manipulated uh, this very mechanical medium. And then there'll be obviously... Uh, you know, the future that's all digital, and there'll be sort of a very strange transition a uh, few decades where video was invented and time code and various formats of video evolved, and uh, and I think we're sort of getting towards the tail end of that where almost everything will be shot digitally and projected digitally going forward. We're still in the sort of the gray area between as we're, it's trailing off. Film still is a lot better than video in a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But, you know, things being better doesn't always keep things from changing. Right. You know, right. Uh, no one ever argued that beta wasn't better than VHS. Um, you know, the, the digital audio format, the AIF files that are on CDs are arguably better than MP3s. But, you know, there's something, there's a lot of things that go into what's better. Right. Um, right. Digital is very convenient. And uh, I think as the economics of storage and uh, projections continue to change, yeah, you're going to see everything being shot on video. I uh, used Final Cut Pro late last year to cut a feature film. And, uh, you know, I use the term feature film loosely because it was, in fact, shot 
the way Star Wars was shot on 24p digital video, mm-hmm. high definition digital video, and it's, it's not like the stuff in your normal camcorder. Right. Very high quality, but it is video. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's the way things are going to go. Okay, I guess we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about your book or your projects? Well, I, I think um, all I would really say is that I, I think that the skills of editing and manipulating video are really important to people. I think you can apply them to your work and your life integrated in. And I think it's a kind of literacy that going forward, uh, people who have that sort of video literacy will be, will be really accelerated, very advanced in, uh, in the workplace and education. So I think it's, you know, like learning how to type is an important thing for everybody to know how to do. It doesn't mean you're going to go off and be a filmmaker or a videographer, but I think it will help you do anything that you do because it's another way to communicate. So that's really what I try to communicate to people is that the power of video, the ease of video, and luckily today it's not very expensive either. So um, I think it's a good time to start moving into digital video and learn how to control it and make it something that you know how to do. It's fun. Uh, Mr. Rubin, thanks for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thanks for having me. And we were just talking to Michael Rubin, author of Making Movies in Final Cut Express and the little digital video book. Uh, you can also find more about his, uh, his work at the website nonlinear.info and you're listening to Perfect Rocks only here on 90.7 FM in a few moments find out what the ozone is so stay tuned Back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered what ozone is? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Did you ever wonder what ozone is? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. Everyday Science. 
hope you're ready for some air travel today, because that's what it's going to take to answer today's question. Nearly 90% of all ozone molecules are located about 10 to 20 miles above Earth in the Earth's stratosphere. And up here, these molecules do a world of good, even though they're scarce. In fact, in every million molecules of air, only 10 are ozone. Maybe that's because conditions have to be just right for ozone to be created. Here, I'll show you what I mean. Feel that warmth? That's the sun. Right now, it's sending electromagnetic radiation towards the Earth. Now, about 5% of that radiation is ultraviolet. That 5% is the part that's dangerous to life on Earth. In humans, strong UV light can cause premature aging, cancer, eye disease, and lots of other problems. And it can also destroy the plant and animal life we need to survive. But watch. When that ultraviolet light reaches the oxygen in our atmosphere, it changes it from oxygen molecules with two atoms into oxygen molecules with three atoms. Now that the oxygen molecule has three atoms, it's officially known as ozone. As ozone, this molecule has the unique ability to absorb those ultraviolet rays and protect life on Earth below. Well, thanks for sharing this airtime with us and for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Mayer Corporation's national education program, making science make sense. You know, it would be great if we could visit her ozone. <laughs> she's got me high in the stratosphere every time I listen to her. Oh, she's torturing me, uh, everyday science lady. But caution, though, there might be like uh, radiation uh, emanating from there. <laughs> could cause, uh, you know, premature aging and uh, cancer. I would risk it. I would actually risk it. Damn it, I would risk it. Ja, well, thank you very much, and uh, welcome back. Here's Herr Dr. Professor Einstein with the answer to last week's question of the week. Well, did you know the answer? It is how the vibrations can be transferred into electrical currents. Yeah, they're very crazy. Yeah, it's just a very big, big question. Yeah, and so the answer to that is there's a piezo device. It's piezo crystals, yeah? So then when they're compressed and deformed, they actually release electrical currents, and that is how you can transfer vibrations into a current. Oh, I wonder if there's an ozone around the piezo disc. I don't know. It's crazy. Ah, and here is a Tokyo kid with uh, this week's question of the week. What is a photosynthesis? If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at grogs at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but your plants might be a little greener. And that's all for this week's edition of Perfect Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Perfect Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Perfect Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel.